We're going to be looking at, at, we're looking at how to have exceeding joy and we're looking this morning at the secret of serving. Um, there was a story that's um, been told about two Australian graduates. They were just Australian friends and they just graduated from college and they'd received employment in Indonesia, in the capital city of Indonesia, which is Jakarta. And so what they did, they've never lived away from home before. So it was a big deal for these two young Australian friends. So when they got to Jakarta, they actually hired a houseboy to do all their work. The houseboy did all the cleaning and the cooking and the gardening. And this is something that was pretty common in Indonesia and pretty inexpensive. So that's what happened. They got this little boy and he worked extremely hard for them. He, he worked very hard and uh, he, he did all the jobs that they asked him to really well and with a pleasant smile on his face. So the two Australians, as they watched him, they became amazed at the kind of attitude he seemed to have. You know, there's nothing that seemed to upset this little boy. Well, he wasn't a boy, he was about 10 or 12. And the way they just started to do things all the time, the way he served them, he would never become angry with them. First, they decided that what they'd do is kind of test this boy's servanthood, you know, see if they could annoy him or make him angry. So they came up with a scheme and they said, well, let's try and do some tricks to him to see if we can put him off his task of serving so well. So one day they sort of grabbed their shoes and nailed them to the floor, you know, and uh, uh, sure enough, the little boy came up and cleaning up and he had to pull off get a hammer and undo the nails and and they thought it was a great joke, the Australian guys. And the next thing they did was they put some sticky honey all over the door handle so that when he'd come in and open the door, he'd get it all over his hands. And uh, they they giggled to themselves as they heard him, you know, uh, doing that. But, you know, they'd see him just a few minutes later with a little polite smile on his face, just getting straight back onto the next job. And then they uh, decided what we'd do is we'll put some water in a bowl on a door. Ever tried this one before? And uh, the little boy, the young boy came through the door and he opened the door and it just worked exactly as they planned. The water in the bowl fell down all over his head, got him completely wet and he sort of just brushed himself off, pleasantly smiled, started sweeping it all up again as though nothing had happened and back onto the next job. And, you know, these Australian boys, Australian young men, you know, they were pretty amazed at him. Uh, So after all these practical jokes, they really started to feel sorry for him. And they actually decided that the way they'd been treating this boy was pretty unfair. It was pretty cruel. And so they decided that they'd sit down and, um, and just admit what they'd done and said how sorry they were. So they came to him and they said, listen, we want to let you know that we've been really bad to you. And we just want to let you know how sorry we've been for all the tricks that we have played on you. And we want to promise you now that we're not going to play any more tricks on you. We're we're through with playing tricks. In fact, from now on, we're going to really be good. We promise to be just kind to you. And the Indonesian boy, he said, what, what, uh, you mean no more nail shoe on floor? And uh, they said, no, no, no more nail shoe on floor. We promise we will never do that anymore. He said, you mean no more sticky on door? He said, uh, they said, we promise we will not put any more sticky on door. He said, no more uh, water on door? And he said, no, no more water on door. And the Indonesian boy thought for a little while and then he began to smile. And he said, okay, me no more spit in soup. <laughs> 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 now today we're going to look at how you can smile while you're serving <laughs> but we're not going to teach you how to spit in soup that's for sure um, the truth is that today there are so many people aren't there that are looking for happiness they're looking for joy in their life but they're looking in all the wrong places You know, some people are looking for it in status. Some people are looking for it in the successes that they have, the way the world sees them. Some look for it in a career. Some look for it in money. Some look for it in relationships. But they're looking in all the wrong places. So why don't we open up together uh, Philippians chapter 2. Why don't you have that open this morning? 
And we're going to look through Philippians chapter one, uh, chapter two, verses one to eleven, and we're going to look at, at at what Paul was asking the people there. And as we open up, we we recognise that Paul is under house arrest and he's chained to a guard 24 hours a day. And right through that time, he starts to write and he starts to write about what would really, really make him happy. You know, and I would think, Paul, if that was me, or or Paul in jail, I thought, you know, maybe he'd be asking for a few more blankets from the Philippian church. You know, it's a bit cold in here. Could you send them quickly? Or maybe a food hamper, you know, maybe, or maybe he wanted a Game Boy or something. I don't know. But no, this is far from his thoughts. He's not even thinking about himself as he's in jail there. You know what he says in these first few verses that would make his joy complete? It would be if the Philippian church would be unified. If they would be unified, that would make his joy complete. He said, I'm already really joyful, but you know what will complete my joy? If you're unified. If you're unified. Nothing more would warm Paul's heart than being unified. You know, there was a little hint of disunity. We read in Philippians 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, that there was a hint of disunity between Euodia and Syntyche, two women in the church. Now, this wasn't a huge division, but it was just starting to show. And Paul, in these first verses here of uh, two, uh, second Philippians, starts to really address uh, this issue of unity. He wants to show the Philippian church that how important it is to be unified, the reasons that they should be unified. He wants to tell them how they should be unified. And he wants to give them a brilliant example of one who served in such a way that others were benefited. And there was a, there's a strong unity because of what he's done. And that was what would make him joyful. That's what makes us joyful as we look at these passages. So let's, let's begin here to see what, what Paul writes. He starts up and he, and he says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and sympathetic? Paul gives us here four great reasons to be unified. Right in this first verse, he gives us four great reasons to be unified. And the first one is that all Christians are united in Christ. Some versions say in Christ in there. Because we belong to Christ, is there any joy that you have from being in Christ? What does that mean? In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, it says, If anyone is in Christ... They're a new creation. You know, the old is gone. The new has come. Uh, what Paul is saying, that those that belong to Christ, those that have given their hearts to him and responded in a relationship with Jesus Christ, responded to his love, then they are in Christ. They're new creations. They're transformed. You know, 1 John, uh, John 1, chapter 12, verse 12 says, you know, to whoever believed him, to as many who received him, He gave the right to be called children of God, part of a family, belonging to each other in Christ. So first reason for being unified is that all Christians are united in Christ. We have that in one. So this morning, if you belong to Jesus and you're in this church this morning with a whole lot of other people that have so much in common, you know the risen Lord Jesus. He's forgiven your sin. He's changed your life. He's given you a hope and a future and that's what unifies us. That's a great reason for us to have unity as a church. Jesus Christ. We're one in him. Paul says in this verse, secondly, you know, the comfort of his love. If, if, anyone, if anyone has any comfort from knowing God's love, you know, as we experience God's love, as we experience what it is to receive the love of Christ as Christians, then we are comforted in our own lives. We feel that things are okay if we know that the one who made the heavens and the earth loves us and cares for us and comforts us with his love. And you know what that causes us to do? Comfort and care and love others who aren't feeling God's love at this time. 
So because of his love, because of the comfort of God's love, we share it with other people. And that's something that brings us unity. We've received God's love and we want to share it with each other. And that's a great reason for unity. Paul goes on and he says, you know, the same Holy Spirit lives in each of us. You know, he, he says here, is there any fellowship together in the Spirit? You know, when people come to that point, when they believe in Jesus Christ, when they accept him into their heart, into their lives, the Holy Spirit fills their lives. They become followers of Jesus and his Spirit lives within us. We, we, we sense God speaking to us through his Holy Spirit. We sense him prompting us, convicting us, challenging us each day. That is something that we all share in unity. When we belong to Jesus, we know that the risen Lord is real. We have experience of his Holy Spirit in our lives each day as we follow and as we serve in him, as we obey. That's a cause for unity, Paul says. That's why we should be united as a church. That's why the Philippians should be united. And then he goes on and he says, you know, we share together this Christian love. Have a look at the end of that verse there. He says, are your hearts tender and sympathetic? Um, we, we share this same Christian love for each other because of our love for Christ. It's a tenderness. It's a sympathetic compassion for one another. So that's what brings us unity is we care when people are hurting, when people are in trouble. So Paul says, why do I want, why, what are some good reasons that you, Philippian church, at this time should be unified? Well, here's four right up in the first verse of this chapter, he says. I want you to be unified. Now, it's God's desire for his church to be unified. It's God's desire that we would be one. And these are some great reasons that Paul has shared with us. So Paul doesn't leave it right there, just giving a basis for unity. What he does then is he goes on and he explains more. He says in verse 2 this, that there are three kind of types of unity. There are three, there are different ways that we can be unified. Let's, let's have a look. Why don't we read this verse together as we, as we look on this. Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one heart and purpose. Paul says, I want you to uh, show unity in these ways. Firstly, in your mind, in your minds. He, he says in verse 2, um, uh, agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. See that phrase there? Agreeing is the way we, the way we think, the way we reason things through. Uh, he, he's, so he's saying, Agree with each other in your mind. Some translations have be like-minded. You know, have the same mind as each other as you, as you live together as Christians. You know, here Paul's not necessarily saying that you have to agree on everything. But he's saying have the same approach. You know, unity is not uniformity. Here at our church, if we all say, you've got to, the way we can be unified is all of you just think like Jonathan does, you know. Uh, and then we'll be unified. I don't expect you to have exactly the same beliefs on every different doctrine or idea or thing. Uh, that's not our goal. We're, we're not even trying to achieve that together as a church. You know, if we did, what we'd have to do is we'd start to be checking everybody's you know, little doctrines and we'd be very careful to go right through that. Paul's saying, no, I don't want you to agree on every single issue, but I want you to think the same when it comes to Christ. I want you to have the same purpose, the same like-mindedness. So I want you to be agreeing, in, not on everything, but the same approach, the same attitudes together. Paul goes on and he, he says, not only are you to be united with our minds, but with our emotions. He says here in verse 2, you know, loving one another. We're supposed to love one another. This is how we're to be unified with our actual feelings. You know, some people say, I love you, I just don't like you. <laughs> you know? Have you heard of that? Uh, you know, Paul's saying, we, we want to really seek to have a heart for each other because 
We want to, we've got the same goals. We've got the united in Christ. We, we've got all those same reasons for unity that we've just explained. Therefore, we've got to be working to actually loving each other with our feelings, working to share love. The same love that we have for Christ will compel us to love each other deeply. It means that as we receive God's love, we share it with one another. This same love unites us. So that's how God wants to have us. Not, not to be angry, uh, hating each other, never to be entertaining things like that, never to be you know, uh, seeking to disagree with each other, never be looking for trouble, but looking to love, looking for opportunities to show how we love each other. You know, I wonder, a good question for, for us today is, am I someone who's looking for opportunities to love other people or, rather than to criticise them? Or am I looking to, to really show in the way I feel about people, the way I love them with my emotions? Or am I wanting to you know, look at the differences and focus on them? Paul, Paul would say to us, you know, God wants us to be unified with our mind and with our emotions. And then he says, uh, I want you to be unified with your will as well. He says, in the, you know, that we would have one, we would be one in spirit and that, that we would be one in purpose, you know, and working together with one heart and purpose, he writes. Now, what we have together is the same goal and the same purpose. We, we just want as a church, don't we, to, to live, to function, to serve in everything we do to bring glory to God. We agree with that, don't we? The only thing that we might differ on is sometimes how that's best achieved or what it should be done, but we agree on the main things, that we want to do the best that we can as a church to love and to serve God and to bring him glory. And that's what unifies us. Oh, how quickly we can get onto the other sides, the differences, the ideas. It's good to express those and to work those together, but we've got to be seeking together to work so that we can bring glory to God. And the way we do it is being unified, being unified in our will with one spirit and purpose. That's what we have. Keep that before us, church, that we're here to glorify God with our minds, with our emotions, with our will. And Paul goes on and he says, well, now you've got these reasons for unity. And now you've got uh, these types of unity that we, can, that we have, you know, that we can love God with our mind, with our emotions and with our will. And then he says, now I want to share with you some attitudes that actually destroy unity. And, and listen to what he says in verses 3 and 4. Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourself. Don't think only about your own affairs, but be interested in others too. And be interested in what they're doing. That's what Paul says. So what are some of the attitudes that actually destroy unity? You know, what are some of the things we've got to be so careful of as a church? What are some of the things we've got to be really hoping and praying, God, please not in my life. Please, none of this to be evident in my life. He says selfish ambition, firstly in verse 3. Now, don't be selfish. Don't be selfish, Paul says. There's nothing wrong with ambition as such. There's nothing wrong with the desire to succeed. There's nothing wrong to actually seek to do an excellent job and be successful in what you do, as long as that ambition is subordinated to the will of God. Do you know, if you're doing it for your own glory, for your own purposes, then it's wrong. If you're seeking to be successful for God's glory, if you're seeking to do a good job at what you're doing for God's glory, then that's good. So he's not against ambition as such, but selfish ambition is what he's saying. Our ambition in everything that we do should be like Paul said last week. You know, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want to do whatever you ask me to, Jesus. I want to, I want to be completely uh, 
doing what you're calling me to. I want to live for you. I want to be a servant, not my will, Jesus, but your will in everything that I do. That's selfish ambition. The second thing he says, you know, that we're not to do as a church and individuals, you and I, is to have self-importance. Self-importance. See, he says, don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. This is kind of uh, the opposite. Uh, this This is kind of... Vain conceit, it says in, in other ones. The, it's the opposite of humility, actually. You know, humility is thinking of yourself lower. Other, this, this is vain conceit, thinking that you're better, you're self-important. You know, you're someone who should be listened to. You're sh- someone who's, you know, um, can look down on other people. Paul says that's not to be in, in us at all. You know, we're not to be people that are trying to be self-important. And to look ourselves up. Now, what's, what is uh, Paul saying here? Is he saying that you're supposed to think, for instance, that, um, you know, are you supposed to think that you're not as good a, like, say, if you're Guy Sebastian, you're supposed to think that you're not as good a singer as, say, Sandy? Is that what, what this verse is saying? Is he thinking, is, is Paul saying, you know, think of yourself really uh, low? No, he's not saying don't, don't put yourself right. Sandy, I'm not meaning that. <laughs> You've got a fabulous voice. I mean me, that's what I mean. <laughs> but I'm saying, gee, Sandy, I'm sorry. Uh, I didn't mean how that came out. But what I'm saying is if you are Guy Sebastian, does that mean you're supposed to pretend that you're not a good singer um, when you really are? No, he's not, Paul's not saying that at all. That's not a self, uh, self-importance. He's actually exaggerating uh, your gifts. He, we are, God has gifted us in different ways and some of us, he's given us exceptional voices. And, some, uh, and we're not supposed to pretend that we don't have those gifts. No, it's not a false humility. It's not a putting yourself down as though you're hopeless when God's really given you some gifts which are, which are just wonderful. No, this is actually saying that I'm not going to seek to promote myself. Uh, it's not saying that I'm um, you know, not as morally good as somebody who's, who else is, is sinful. No, it may very well be that we live cleaner, better lives than other people. You know, it's not like saying that I'm just as bad as Hitler, really, you know. No, that's not true. I mean, in, in many ways, we it's not a false humility. So, so what Paul is saying here, he, he's saying don't think of yourself more important. You know, don't think of yourself more important. If you've been given gifts, great, praise God for them. But don't think that you're more important than other people because of them. You know, self-importance destroys unity in the church. That's what Paul was saying. You know, selfish ambition destroys unity in the church. Finally, he says self-centeredness. In verse 4, he says, Don't think only about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and what they're doing. You know, take a real interest in other people's. The, the Christian life should actually change our focus. It should change our focus from being focused on ourselves to be focused on others. As Christ transforms our lives and as we seek to follow him, our focus should be on other people's desires, on on serving other people, on trying to uh, be oriented towards their needs rather than our own. You know, good questions to ask this morning for each and every one of us is this, how do I actually treat my family? How do I treat my family? Am I someone who's actually seeking to understand them and love them and and look out for their needs? Or have I become destructive in the way I live in my family, expecting people to serve my needs in my family? You know, saying, hey, I'm I'm the one around here, you know, that that needs to be looked after and you need to serve me. How does that happen in your family? Have you subtly got into that? I wonder um, about with your friends. You know, do you get really upset if your friend lets you down in a small way, you know, they weren't thinking of my needs, you know. 
What about work, work colleagues, workmates? What about members of your church? How upset do you get when someone doesn't fulfil your expectations? Do you find yourself getting really mad when someone says something that offends you? You know, Paul's saying, no, keep your focus not on yourself and how upset you are and how offended you are, but look to the needs of others. Keep, keep looking to other people and serving them and helping them and being there for them because as Christians our focus moves from our self-focused, our own needs, to the needs of others and serving them. You know, I wonder that the, the, the question might be put another way. Who's at the centre of your thoughts and of your conversations? But, you know, who is it that's at the centre of the, your thoughts, your prayers, your conversations? Are you and your interests always dominating? Or, or is it the interests of others? You know, who is at the centre in your life? And then Paul, after he's done all this talk about unity, gets to this point and he says this in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. And let's read this together, shall we? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ. Sorry, let's read it again. Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. You know, Paul's saying, as I talk about this unity, church, Philippians, as I talk about the four ways in which you can be unified, reasons for being unified, as I talk about all of this, as I start to explain how you can and the things that you shouldn't do, it reminds me of Jesus Christ and his attitude and the way he lived because he was one who demonstrated in every way that he'd come not to be served but to serve. He made himself a servant. He humbled himself. He emptied himself. He came obedient even to death on a cross. He's the example. We're going to spend some time together now, as a church, you know, worshipping God, this one who is the example of what it means to be a humble servant, the example of what it means to live for him. So Paul continued, and he continued to explain about who, Paul, who Jesus was. He said, you know, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And we read in verse 6, though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. The NIV says, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Here we have a rare insight in scripture. These verses here are incredible. Because often we see what Jesus did. You know, we see the example of what Jesus did in his miracles and the things that happened on earth. But we often, but here we're given a real insight into actually what Jesus thought. This verse begins by, by stating that Jesus was in the very nature God. You know, the words very nature or though he was God. That phrase comes from the Greek word, which means morphe. Uh, this word, it, it, when it's translated in the King James and New, New American Standard Bible and the RSV, has the word form. So being in the very form of God. It means like inward character being the same as outward character. It, it, it means um, the inward character of a thing as well as the outward expression of that as well. In other words, Jesus was both inwardly and outwardly God. He was God. Uh, so even though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He did not demand and cling to his rights as God. Here we see inside Jesus' mind what he was thinking. He, and he didn't consider equality with God. God, something to be grasped. 
You know, Jesus d- didn't try to hold on tightly to his privileged equality with God. He didn't use his position to advantage because Christ was in the very nature God. He didn't consider something to be exploited, this power, something which he should take advantage of. And this equality with God led him to view his status not as a matter of privilege but as a matter of unselfish giving. Boy, there are many people who exploit positions of power, aren't there? You know, we can think of, of so many, but I can remember when I worked at Dane Furniture in, in Furniture Gully. If any of you have friends or brothers in there, please just ignore what I'm about to say. <laughs> but there was young, one young foreman who was really rough. He was rough and tough. And one day, as I was at 15 years of age on school holidays, so I was sitting down in this factory and, you know, I was, had to do these things all day. I was getting really weary. So I just sort of sat down on one of those crates, you know, and old Stewie was his name, and he came up behind me and he just went whack and kicked the crate right out from under me and I just fell straight down and he said, don't sit on the job. And he walked off going, <laughs> And he just, you know, I just was shattered and never sat down again. I just, you know. <laughs> he was ruling with fear. He was using his power and his authority uh, and exploiting it to make me afraid so I would work twice as hard and... You know, that's just a small example, but we see this going on all the time in third world countries and where there's such corruption, where people that have power exploit it and use it to the full, to the complete disadvantage of others. And Jesus didn't do that. You know, Lady Di, she was someone who became so deeply loved because rather than exploiting her position, she seemed to use it publicly to serve others. You know, you look at her on, on photos there were of her at landmines or helping those who were dying with AIDS. And the people really loved her because of the way she used that power and influence to help others in those situations. Jesus' attitude was not to hold on to his position of power with a firm grip, but to use his position to serve others. An attitude is kind of abstract though, isn't it? So You can't actually see an attitude unless it's expressed in action. And so in verse 7, we see Jesus' action. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. You know, firstly, Paul says, you know, Jesus made himself nothing. Some translations say, you know, that he emptied himself. Does that mean that Jesus actually emptied himself of his divine nature, of his deity? Did Jesus lose any of his divine attributes when he emptied himself? No, no. Paul actually uses a metaphor here to explain that Jesus made himself nothing. He emptied himself in the sense that he left the glory and privilege of heaven and he took upon himself the very nature of a servant, the very nature of a servant by being made in human likeness. You know, he revealed the form of God in the form of a slave, in the form of human likeness. He revealed what God was like. This was nothing in comparison comparison to how Jesus had existed. It's incredible. You might remember um, last year we we looked about uh, the essence of true true greatness and whoever wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Remember we talked about the pecking order? You know about the, the chickens and how they automatically form a hierarchy and the number ten, one chicken picks on number two and number two picks on number three all the way down to the very last chicken that has no one to pick on and is picked on by everyone else. In, like this, you know, Jesus left his privileged position to actually serve. He wasn't into pecking orders. In Mark 10, 45, we read, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's the the, the first way. He he didn't grasp power, Jesus. The second way in which Jesus expressed his attitude is found in verse 8. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. See, Christ emptied himself 
by becoming a slave. That's the first thing, emptied himself. But he stooped lower when he humbled himself in human condition and obeyed God, even obedience, which actually led to, a, to, to his death on the cross. You know, in the Roman world where Paul uh, was living and the Philippians lived, it was the lowest that one could stoop to being crucified. Crucifixion was an absolute cruelest form any uh, uh, official could actually, um, you know, put on people. That's a, a, a cruel penalty. And in the Roman Empire, uh, maybe a Roman citizen might actually be cru- crucified for high treason, but really it was re- only saved crucifixion for people that generally weren't Roman citizens. You know, this was so detestable way of being killed that it was only reserved really for lower classes, especially slaves. Partly um, you know, because convers- it wasn't the part of, it wasn't on people's lips crucifixion, especially in polite society. You know, in the upper end, people didn't talk about um, crucifixion very much. But the executioners were allowed a little bit of creativity when they crucified people. And the specifics of what happens aren't really frequently described. But generally, however, you know, the victim was first tortured in various ways and then fastened to a cross by impaling, by nailing, by binding with ropes or some combination of all three. And then death came over a a slow period of days. And, you know, what would often happen is that there would be so much blood loss, there'd be thirst, there'd be hunger. Wild animals would come and attack the bodies and suffocation would occur as well. Crucifixion. And Jesus humbled himself from heaven, uh, you know, all glory and honour and power. And he became obedient to death, a death deserved for the lowest of low, the lowest of low. You know, in Matthew 23 and verse 12, Jesus says, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's what Jesus said. Jesus lived this verse in his own life, didn't he? He's a true example of that verse. You'll notice in that verse, you, you, you know, you know, you'll notice that there's one person that's doing something to themselves in that verse. They're exalting himself. And there's something else that the other person is doing and they're humbling themselves. They're doing it to themselves. They're actually choosing to find what they're going to do, either exalt themselves or humble themselves. And we find the same thing here in Philippians. Everything that is said in the first four verses of Philippians 5 to 11 has Jesus himself as the subject. He's actually doing it. He wasn't being forced by God to do it. He was doing it. He did not consider himself, uh, consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't consider that. He made himself nothing. He became obedient. See, he did these things. He was acting. He was the subject that was doing it. The second half of this passage has God as the subject. He was humbling himself. Jesus was doing all those things. And the second part now we see God as the subject. God raised him up. He raised him up to the highest heights of heaven and gave him a name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus will reign and God will one day make sure of it. But there's a very serious truth in these verses. One day every knee will bow. Every knee will bow before Jesus. And the question this morning is, you are going to see him. You know, that's true. You're going to bow the knee before Jesus. But will it be to love and adore Jesus? Or will it be, will it be that you'll see him and you'll fall by compulsion the moment before you're taken away from his presence forever? You know, will you bow and worship Jesus, the one you've known and you've loved in in this life? 
or will you be forced to bow because of who he is before being taken from his presence eternally? Only you can respond to Christ in this time. (coughs) Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Don't leave it any longer than today to respond to his love, to respond to this servant who died, who gave himself up, who became nothing, who emptied himself, who died on a cross for you so that you could come to know him, so that you could exalt him, so that you could make him the Lord of your life, that you could say, Jesus, I love you. I worship you. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Church, Paul's screaming out to us in this time of change, of transition, of growth, to say, church, be unified like the church at Philippi. You know, be, uh, be unified as a church. And the way to be unified is to be humble servants, just like Christ was, who didn't try to promote himself or grab at power or do all those kind of things, but he emptied himself. He gave it away. He became a humble servant. And let God do his parts in your life. Let God be responsible for the exaltation, for the glory. He'll do his part. You keep your eyes focused on him. Humble yourself. Before, how can you do that? There are so many ways. There are so many ways. Why don't you just read the scriptures? Seek to become more like Christ. You know, many people have said, why don't we get these WWJD things which says, what would Jesus do? And they wear them and they say, oh, what would Jesus do in this situation? You know, I'm being tempted in this way. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus That's great. If that works, that's a good idea of doing that. You know, there are so many books about, uh, In His Steps is, is a book uh, um, which is a great one to, to get from the, from the library. Just like Jesus is one Max Licato's written. You know, there, there's a, a book by Philip Yancey which calls The Jesus I Never Knew. You can read these books and learn what Jesus was like. What was his attitude? How does his actions show what attitude he has? Read the scriptures. Read through and see what Jesus said. You know, spend time just asking yourself each day, am I listening to others? Am I serving others? Am I valuing them? You know, as more important than me, am I serving them? And you know what? Exalt the risen Lord Jesus who died for you and loves you. And one day you'll be bowing before him. Let's exalt him now, shall we? The Bible records for us what this servant our God, Jesus, did on the night when he was betrayed. John 13 tells us that before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and to return to his Father. And he showed the disciples the full extent of his love. It was time for supper and the devil had already enticed Judas, son of Simon, Iscariot to carry out his plan to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table. He took off his robe. He wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel around him. This God who always was, always is and always will be, washed dirty feet. This God who always was and always is and always will be, left heaven to come to earth, to die on a cross. The Bible says we all like sheep have gone astray. Now each of us have gone to our own way. And then it says, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin. He's laid on him the punishment of us all. And we deserve to die. 
You deserve to die because we've shaken our fist at a holy God. We've uh, gone our own way and we've lived the way that we thought was best. And the Bible says, hey, the wages, the punishment, the payment that's due to you because of what you've done is nothing more, nothing less than death. Eternal separation from God. Aren't you thankful for servants? Aren't you thankful for Jesus who emptied himself, who came to earth, who lived a sinless life, who though he was the creator of the heavens and earth, was crucified so that you and I can know God personally because our sin is dealt with completely. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have an everlasting life. This morning we come and we share the cup and the bread, symbols of the death of Jesus Christ and for the forgiveness that only his death can bring. As we come to share, let's pray and Ken's going to lead us in prayer. Father, Lord, and the things that we we think, we say, and we do that we should. Paul explained uh, this meal in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says, For this is what the Lord himself said, and I pass on to you just as I received it. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and you, sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. The invitation this morning is for all who love the Lord and would like to love him more. You don't have to be um, anything but believing and trusting in Jesus to remember his death and what it's done for you. So come, let's remember the suffering servant and his love which brings you life. As you're served, would you take a piece of bread and just eat it as you're served? And also as you are given the the cup, will you retain that and we'll drink that together? Um, We're part of one family and we'll Drink that together as a symbol of that.
How did Jesus feel about dying for you? It's a bit grudgingly, a bit like Paul ringing Pastor Starkey. This is what Hebrews 12 says, verse 2. Let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, on whom our faith depends from the beginning to end. He did not give up because of the cross. On the contrary, because of the joy that was waiting for him, because of the joy that was waiting for him, the thought, he thought nothing of the disgrace of dying on the cross and is now seated at the far, far side, right-hand side of the throne of God. Now Christ was pleased to die for you and brought him joy to obey his Father. Let's drink together with thankful hearts. God, this morning we're so filled with, with a sense of um, joy, knowing that you've set us an example to follow. And God, it's just so completely different to the way the world teaches us. You humbled yourself. You emptied yourself and became a servant. Help us to humble ourselves and become servants, God so that we might know the joy that comes from obeying you, that comes from living according to your plans and your purposes, that comes from living lives that are surrendered to you. God, this morning we want to pray for our church. May, Lord, we be one in purpose. God, may we be one in our desires. God, may we have your attitude as a church. May we seek to love and to serve you and to bring you glory in everything we do. This morning, God, in our lives, we pray that individually we would be servants. God, we, we, we don't want to have self-importance. We don't want to have self-ambition, selfish ambition. God, we don't want to uh, put ourselves higher than other people. Help us be humble, servants like you. God, give us the courage to do that today. Give us the courage to do that this week. Give us the courage to live for you and not ourselves in everything that we do so that we might know the joy, the joy that comes from serving, so that we might smile while we serve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right now, I'm just wondering if you could just take out those blue cards that you have there this morning. <coughs> We just want to give you a time to respond. You know, one of the things we love, we'd love you to do is just everybody here, if you can, to fill out one of those blue cards. We'd just love you to complete it now. We're going to give you time to do that. And we'd love to, you to respond, not to me, but to things that God might be saying to you. you know, maybe on the back there might be something that you feel is the next step that God's taking you to, uh, calling you to take in your journey. Maybe you just might want to a write a prayer request. Why don't you just spend these times before God filling out these cards and just seeing what he might be saying to you. Let's spend some moments doing that right now.